Africa Midday. This is Africa Midday. Skies right here in Johannesburg, South Africa, and that's where we're broadcasting from our Auckland Park studios. And you are listening to Africa Midday with me, Benjamin Mushatama, right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Don't forget that frequency, it's 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. And in studio with me this hour is Tabisa Looko, who will give us our news and economics update, and Tamikuza gives us the sports in this hour. Top stories on Africa midday. South Africa marks 24 years since Nelson Mandela's release from prison. South Sudan peace talks have been postponed. And election preparation gains momentum in Malawi. In business in this hour, miners strike at Anglo Gold Ashanti sites in Mali. And in sports, South African cricket team ready for the first test against Australia. But first, let's get the news from Tabi The second round of peace talks between the warring factions in South Sudan is scheduled to start today. The talks failed to resume yesterday when the Sudanese rebels threatened to boycott them in Ethiopia. Chief mediator of the peace talks is C.U. Mesvin. South Sudan is at war with itself. That's the reality. They have to stop this war. They are the main actors of this conflict. So the government and the rebellion, they have truly to stop this war. Then the third parties intervening in South Sudan will have no justification to stay in the country or to shoot at this or that party. The road to the first ever May 20th tripartite elections has begun in Malawi. Previously, Malawi used to have presidential and parliamentary elections at one time only. After receiving the forms, the Malawi Electoral Commission will determine the fate of all aspirants after seven days. Peter Tarika is from the Democratic Progressive Party. Mr. Candidate, I'll ask you to say the following words after me. I, Professor... Peter Mutarika. I, Professor Peter Mutarika. Having been nominated as candidate. Have been nominated as candidate. In the May 20, 2014 presidential election. In the May 20 presidential election. The section of a natural gas pipeline has been blown up south of Al-Arish, the northern Sinai Peninsula. The explosion occurred during the early hours of this morning. The pipeline provides gas to Jordan and some parts of Sinai. No group or individual has claimed responsibility for the attack. The South African Post Office has issued a philatelic souvenir folder to former or rather to commemorate the life and legacy of former President Nelson Mandela. The folder revealed at the Nelson Mandela Center of Memory in Johannesburg contains a high-quality miniature sheet depicting Madiba and a brief summary of his life history. 
Today marks 24 years since former South African President Nelson Mandela was released from the Victor Festa prison in the Western Cape province. His release in 1990 came eight days after former President F.W. de Klerk announced the unbanning of political parties in South Africa, including Mandela's African National Congress. The souvenir folder is one of the means of continuing the Madiba legacy. The philatelic product is said to be printed on the highest quality paper using state-of-the-art printing process to ensure that the item is immensely collectible. Printed in silver, the miniature sheet features a portrait of Madiba. And obviously refreshing your mind there. That's a soundbite by Palma Gubani on the South African Post Office issuing a philatelic souvenir, um, you know, in essence, to commemorate the life of former South African President Nelson Mandela, who was buried sometime in December. Channel Africa News. Africa, Africa Midday. This is Africa Midday. This is Africa Midday, and uh, the frequency is 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. Thank you to Tabiso Luoku. He'll be back later on, giving us our headlines and our economics update later in the program. If you want to interact with us during the program, do that on plus two seven eight two three three two five nine five nine zero five. I have to reiterate, that's not a telephone number. That is an SMS line. And let us know what you think of our programming. If any story comes out to you, uh, let us know what you think about it. You can also email us at info at channelafrica.org. Now, starting with politics with our first story. Today, South Africa commemorates 24 years since the release of the late former President Nelson Mandela from the then Victor Verster prison in the Western Cape province. The iconic leader died last year. Mandela spent 27 years in prison before becoming the country's first democratically elected president. Judongo Beni compiled this report. South Africans are commemorating the 24th anniversary of the release of the late Nelson Mandela from prison on the 2nd of February 1990. The then state president F.W. de Klerk announced Mandela's release and the unbanning of the African National Congress, the ANC and other political parties in the country. In pursuance of my opening address to Parliament, I am now in a position to announce that Mr. Nelson Mandela will be released at the Victor Verstaat prison on Sunday the 11th of February at about 3 p.m. Mandela spent 27 years in prison before becoming the country's first democratically elected president. When Mandela left Victor Verster prison in Cape Town, a freeman, on that very same day, he addressed thousands of people gathered outside Cape Town's city hall. Accompanied by his then-wife, Winnie, Mandela was enthusiastically received by the throngs who came to see him. Mandela spent 18 years on Robben Island and a short period at Postmore prison before spending the last 14 months of his imprisonment at the Victor Fester prison, now known as the Drunkenstein Correctional Center. In June 1964, Madiba and other political activists were sentenced to life in prison. Amanda! Amanda! In Africa! Amanda! 
I stand here before you not as a prophet but as a humble servant of you, the people. Your tireless and heroic sacrifices have made it possible for me to be here today. Mandela died last year on the 5th of December. 91 heads of state attended Madiba's funeral with 4,500 journalists from all over the world covering the event. A national 10-day period of mourning was observed with unprecedented media coverage of the life and times of the liberation icon. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Tutongobene in Johannesburg. Now, staying in South Africa, the country's Independent Electoral Commission, or the IEC, has released the results of last weekend's voter voter registration. The Southern African nation will hold its fifth general elections on uh, May the 7th, and prison inmates and South Africans living abroad will also have an opportunity to vote this year. But service delivery protests continue to hog the headlines as the country marks 20 years of democracy. Now, to talk to us more, we joined on the line by IEC spokesperson Kate Babela. Uh, good afternoon and welcome to the program, Kate. Good afternoon. Now, this past weekend, you held the last round of voter registration. How did the citizens respond to this call? Citizens respond extremely well to this call. Despite uh, the rain uh, that we menaced this weekend, despite the service delivery protests, and we were worried at some point that uh, the environment was, was a little bit difficult to operate in, but all in all, South Africans came out in the numbers. This, this voter registration weekend, which was the final one, brought in 1,259,560 new registered voters to the voters' roll. So we quite, uh, we're very comfortable as we start preparing uh, the 7th of May uh, election. And when we entered the, week, the, the voter registration weekend, we're sitting at about 24 million voters. This, as I'm speaking to you this afternoon, we're sitting at 25 million, 25.3 million South Africans who are on, the, on our voters' roll. So we really are very happy. And uh, the, 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 I think the greatest news is that of that number, the majority of it, it's young people. Now, the process was very efficient. I was one who went to check if I'm still registered. It took a minute or so. It didn't take very long. But there were some people, which I was disappointed to see at the end of the day uh, on Sunday, uh, who arrived very late. If one has not registered yet, was this their last chance? This was the last uh, registration weekend. This is the weekend when we opened our voting stations. It was definitely the last one. But uh, there's still a, a window of opportunity that we are still also exploiting as a commission. Whilst the president is still to um, publish the election date on the on the on the government gazette, when that happens, it's only then that they will stop registering people. But as of now, until that date, we are urging South Africans who have not yet uh, registered as voters to please go to our municipal electoral office. That means in every municipality in this country, there is an IEC office where they can go to register to vote. They must take their green barcode ID or smart ID card or temporary identification certificate that is normally issued if someone has misplaced or lost their ID. So we're urging South Africans to use this window of opportunity whilst the president is still still to uh, publish the election date. 
Now, uh, there were areas where there were some service protests, and uh, uh, I'm sure how did that process go, especially because some people were protesting the whole IEC process. How, how did you deal with that situation? Yeah, we, 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 we worked with the security cluster to ensure that uh, the safety of officials of IEC um, as much as possible, also the material was, was, was protected. And in those communities, uh, people like the chairperson of the IEC, Advocate Pensi Klakuda, also went to have a session with the community of Madamulele. So we've been, it has been a, quite a hybrid of activities that were centered around those areas, despite the, the conversations that we had with communities. Also, the security cluster was hard at work to ensure that those who, are, who want to proceed with um, registrations were allowed to do that. So with, from those communities, in some areas we registered, uh, the registration did not go well, but in other areas where things were able to come down, the registration ended up going extremely well. So in those areas we, we fed reasonably. Now we heard that uh, we hear that the prison inmates have been registered for this year's general elections. Is that constitutionally allowed because by virtue of being a prisoner one loses their rights to vote? Or is that incorrect as some people would, would claim that that's the case? No, it's definitely incorrect, but in terms of our constitution, prisoners also are allowed to, 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 to register and to vote. So also during this particular process of the um, registrations, they have an opportunity to register to vote for these particular elections. When we look at their, their numbers, all in all countrywide, the prisoners that were registered in all their facilities came to about 9,000, let me just double-check the number for you, it came to about 9,000 uh, inmates that were registered to vote for this, for these coming elections. Also, the, the registrations, the registration went very well, and um, those who were able to register were registered in, t- in time for voter registration, in time for elections that are coming on the 7th of May. No, the process went very well. Now also, just uh, to highlight that there will also be those who are living abroad who will have the opportunity to vote. How will this process be managed? All right. Already for people who are, we, we held registrations for people who are living, South Africans who are living abroad, which closed on the um, 7th, I think, of February. Yes, on the 7th of February. For those already, they, they registered the numbers of um, registered voters, voters that have already been counted whilst we're still awaiting the remaining number. We're sitting at about, I'll tell you now quickly, 3,521 of them they, 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 that have already been captured in the system. Once the process is finalized, we'll definitely announce the final figure. But that went well. The registration, I think, was those people that, that have gone to our missions abroad and were able to um, register themselves. They were quite uh, uh, appreciative of the opportunity to do that. Because as you may recall, it's the first time in, 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 our, in the history of elections that we've had South Africans who are based abroad registering to vote. Normally, with the 2009 elections, national elections, saw South Africans voting for the very first time overseas because then the way most of them, those that were voting, had already registered in the country. This time around, the registration has been provided to those that had not registered before leaving South Africa. And that opportunity was taken up, so we're hoping that by the time the numbers are finalized, then they'll be published. We're sitting at about 3521 as we speak in this afternoon. Now, a final question. You spoke about a positive turnout of young people. Now, in terms of these young people, especially the so-called born frees, uh, those who are born in 1994, the year of the first democratic elections, is the message to vote reaching them? Because it was said that for this election, this group will be targeted. 
Yes, the message is reaching for the fact that in terms of the the registration figures of the past weekend, that in the majority, definitely the message is reaching as we prepare the election day. We also will be mounting campaigns to continue to engage young people, especially on platforms where they normally converse, like social media, you know, and and we're doing that very, very well. We've had quite a beautiful turnout in terms of registration weekend, as it is about the IEC's um, Facebook page is sitting at more than than 120,000 engagements online, and we really are in conversation with young people in the country. Some of them want to check whether they've got the right documentation, some of them want to know where is the correct voting station because we don't use the word nearest because nearest can be anything. So we use the word correct voting station so that come election day, you can be able to just walk down the road and then cast your ballot. So really young people, I must say, I'm, I'm very proud to say that our young people are heeding the call and are taking advantage of this historic uh, 20, 20th uh, anniversary celebration of our country. Well, thank you so much, Kate, for making time for us here on Channel Africa. It's a pleasure, sir. That was uh, Kate Bapela, who's the spokesperson at the South African Independent Electoral Commission. You're listening to Africa Now, a new round of peace talks between South Sudan's government and rebels aimed at ending a nearly two-month-old conflict in the world's youngest nation has been postponed. The talks, which were due to open in Ethiopia, aimed at a building on a shaky ceasefire agreement and bringing about a comprehensive and durable solution by addressing the root causes of the conflict. Koleta Wanjohi reports from Addis Ababa. Monday evening was set for the official opening of the second phase of peace talks between the government of South Sudan and the rebel faction loyal to Riek Mashar. However, the talks have failed to kick off after the opposition have announced that they will not participate. Johannes Musa Pouk, the assistant spokesperson of the rebel delegation, says that his group will not sit and talk unless the government of Juba honors fully the cessation of hostilities agreement and the agreement pertaining to the release of the political detainees. That's why we were abstaining today, because uh, since we, we signed this agreement with the, the other side, uh, I think we feel that uh, they are not honoring all the agreements that we signed with them. And therefore, I think we think that uh, let us first implement the agreement that we signed and then we go to the second round. The rebel faction wants Juba to unconditionally release all the political detainees and remove Ugandan army from South Sudan if they are to sit to begin political talks. All the time, if you watch the SSTV, which is the national television, always you'll find that they're, they're in, people are insulting us, they're now attacking us in the media. The whole style is still there. Uh, in the government side. So this means that we are always break, uh, we are, we are br- breaking the, the, the agreement, uh, or daily in violation of the agreement that we signed. So, and the second issue is that the government now is still campaigning and is still also uh, attacking our forces in, in the ground. However, the Intergovernmental Agency for Development, IGAD, which has been brokering the peace talks, claims that it did not postpone the commencement of the peace talks because of the threat from the rebels. Chief Mediator of the peace talks, Sayum Mesfin, says that the move by the rebels is not only undermining the peace agreements they signed, but also threatening a continuation of conflict in South Sudan. South Sudan is at war with itself. That's the reality. They have to stop this war. They are the main actors of this conflict. 
so the government and the rebellion, they have truly to stop this war. Then the third parties intervening in South Sudan will have no justification to stay in the country or to shoot at this or that party. IGAD insists that it will continue with its second phase of the political talks once the seven released detainees arrive in Addis Ababa any time from now. Kuleto Njohi, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. The United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, or the UNHCR, has managed to begin distributing basic relief supplies to an estimated 10,000 people displaced by the recent conflict in and around Malakal in South Sudan. This is the first aid to reach the displaced outside the UN base in Malakal. The city was the scene of some of the fiercest fighting last month. Insecurity, as well as widespread looting of humanitarian assets, meant that the UNHCR and other agencies Agencies were unable to deliver aid to those stranded until now. To find out more on this, Channel Africa's Lulu Gabu spoke to UNHCR spokesperson Kisud Gebre Ber, who is in South Sudan. The security situation in Malakal, yes, calm but unpredictable. Rumors of an imminent attack on the zone have created a state of fear and panic among the local population. This has contributed to a large movement of displaced persons to areas they consider safe. People were observed at bus stops, airports and docking ports with luggage presumably moving from place to place. These rumors and the resulting fear are likely to hinder the return of IDPs or internal displaced people to their places of origin. Now, Kisut, we understand that the UN has estimated that uh, around 38,000 people have been displaced in Malakal. Can you elaborate on this? The numbers might be a bit lower now because people keep moving, even leaving the UN base at some point. But in spite of the decreasing numbers, there is a significant congestion in the UN base. And UNHCR, the UN agencies and NGOs are working to make the place more habitable and also to improve some of the services. In the town, people have taken shelters literally everywhere, in churches, in schools, government offices, and all those places. And women and children are clear majority among the displaced. Now, what sort of assistance has the UNHCR managed to provide to the displaced people in the city? UNHCR's assistance package mainly includes household items that are absolutely necessary for people in that kind of situation. This includes uh, sleeping masks, blankets, cooking utensils or kitchen pots and other kitchen facilities, mosquito nets, plastic sheets for shelter and other sanitary materials, buckets, jerry cans, just to name some. Other agents are also providing other assistance packages, including food, water and healthcare. Now, Kisut, there have been concerns about looting in terms of the humanitarian supplies by uh, various agencies. Now, how is the UNHCR working to protect its supplies? The widespread looting of humanitarian supplies was one of the reasons why we delivered aid at this time and not earlier. And all humanitarian agencies, without exception, have suffered serious lootings and their houses have been vandalized, including ours, of course. We are now working with the authorities, with the government authorities, the UN peacekeeping mission in the area, to be able to secure our supplies so that they can reach to the displaced. And now, Akisu, what other agencies have also been able to hand out their supplies to displaced people? You know, the work of assisting 
internal displays is basically not only a UNHCR effort. It's a collaborative effort among UN agencies, NGOs, and other humanitarian actors. So as I mentioned earlier, in addition to non-food items that we provide, other agencies such as WFP, for example, provide food. WHO and other NGOs provide healthcare. Other agencies give water. So all UN agencies and NGOs that are present in the area are trying to provide service. And finally, Kisut, what has the response been like for the people that you have been able to supply aid to? The people, as I mentioned earlier, they're moving. Some of them are apparently clearly on transit because there are rumors being spread in the area. They're happy that they receive this assistance, but they keep moving. Some of them were packing even to to move farther out of the the town and to places where they consider safer. So, yeah, it's, it's nearly a bit chaotic because of those rumors. That is the UNHCR spokesperson Kisut Gebre Exbiaber in South Sudan speaking to Lulu Gabu. Now moving on, the road to the first ever tripartite elections in Malawi has begun. Previously, Malawi used to have presidential and parliamentary elections only at the same time. After receiving their nomination forms, the Malawi Electoral Commission, MEC, will uh, determine the fate of all aspirants after seven days. The initial campaign period starts on the 20th of this month. George Mahango reports from Blantyre. In these tripartite elections, 7.2 million registered voters will choose a president, parliamentarian and ward councillor on May 20, being the first of its kind in Malawi's democracy. Close to 13 presidential candidates will present forms in an event that runs up to Friday. Former ruling Democratic Progressive Party DPP presidential candidate Peter Mutarika was the first to present his forms to the Malawi Electoral Commission MAC officials at Comesa Hall. In Blantyre. Mr. Candidate, I'll ask you to say the following ways after me. I, Professor Peter Mutarika. I, Professor Peter Mutarika. Having been nominated as candidate. Having been nominated as candidate. In the May 20, 2014 presidential election. In the May 20 presidential election. Mutarika is younger brother to former president, the late Bingu Mutarika. Mutarika, whose running mate is Saulo Stilima, a managing director of Airtel Malawi, a leading mobile phone company, boss of support from the southern part of Malawi. Omozi Party UP President Johnny Chisi, National Salvation Front NASAF President James Nyondo, and Disinter Alliance are to present on Thursday while President Joyce Banda of People's Party completes the exercise on Friday. Banda has just unveiled her political manifesto. The People's Party Election Manifesto, which highlights the policies and programs we intend to implement after the forthcoming election. I do so with all humility, knowing as you do how far we have recently come in resisting our country from the mismanagement and abuse of the past government. However, we still have a lot of work to do in order to turn our country around and create the foundation for a clean and competent government 
that meet the aspirations of our people. But the United Independence Party UIP presidential candidate Helen Sin, the second female personality, also presented her form to the Electoral Commission. Seeing an evangelist come business tycoon has the backing of Christian faithfuls. She wants Malawi to be developed through what she calls transparency. Our party, it is our determined goal, our determined vision to ensure that this nation becomes a blessing and a benefit and a pleasure and a pride for every person who lives and belongs to the nation of Malawi. On Tuesday morning, Malawi Congress Party President Lazarus Chakwira led the pack. MCP is the oldest and main opposition party in Malawi. MCP, being the former ruling party, has been out of power since 1994 when Malawians voted out the first president, Kamuzu Banda. Chakwera, a pastor and former president of Assemblies of God Church in Malawi, has the support of 11 districts, mainly Chewa-speaking tribe, where he comes from. I will support and defend the constitution of the Republic of Malawi, of the Republic of Malawi, and I will obey all laws, and I will obey all the laws, I impose this obligation upon myself. I impose this obligation upon myself, my party, and my party. Make chairperson Maxon Mbendera has since warned candidates against violence. Malawians are tired of mudslinging and foul-mouthed electioneering. For a change, they want this election to be issue-based. I would like to urge you, sir, to champion the cause for a clean campaign. Meanwhile, Malawi's two independent presidential candidates, Sangwani Soko and Damiano Ganiza, have pulled out. Reasons are not known. However, opposition United Democratic Front, UDF President Tatupele Muluzi, and his running mate, Godfrey Chapola, will present their nominations this Wednesday. They will be preceded by Davis Katsonga of Jibanicha Fuko and Kamuzu Shwambo of People's Transformation Party Petra. Malawi follows the first-past-the-post system in which whoever leader amasses more votes is declared winner. George Mohango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Channel Africa indeed and this is Africa Midday and uh, remember that uh, just in a few minutes we'll give you our Today in History but before that let's get our headlines. The second round of peace talks between warring factions in South Sudan is scheduled to start on today rather. South Africa's former President Nelson Mandela's granddaughter Ndileka Mandela has led a march from Madiba's home at Kono in the Eastern Cape Province, commemorating his release from prison 24 years ago. And a section of natural gas pipeline has been blown up south of El Arish in northern Sinai Peninsula. Details 1700 hours with Central African time.
Now it's time for our today in history. Very one uh, short one today. Uh, this one is going to be for the 11th of February and uh, looking at some highlights in history on this particular day. In 1951, United Nations forces pushed north across the 38th parallel to the second time in the Korean War. In 1975, on this day, Margaret Thatcher becomes the first woman to lead the British Conservative Party. And finally, in 1990, as we've highlighted, South African political leader Nelson Mandela is released from prison in Pal, South Africa, after serving more than 27 years in prison. Remember, we want to hear from you, as we've just mentioned on that particular Today in History. What do you think this release of Nelson Mandela meant for Africa? Let us know your views. Plus 27-82-332-5905. Plus 27-82-332-5905. Now moving on to health news, approximately 1,000 people get infected with HIV daily in South Africa. High as this may seem, the figure has decreased by more than 50% since 1999. This is according to the latest South Africa survey, a yearbook of the South African Institute of Race Relations, or the SAIRR, has been published since 1946. For more on this survey, Channel Africa's Elizabeth Mapari spoke to Lerato Muloi, head of research at the South African Institute of Race Relations. Okay, well, South Africa Survey is our flagship publication. It's an annual yearbook with all social, economic, and political aspects of South Africa. We've been publishing this annual publication since 1946, and of course it evolves and changes as the years go on. But this year we had 14 chapters ranging from the economy to demographics to education to health and social security in South Africa. So it's basically every single piece of data you might need on South Africa to help you decide what type of social, economic or political landscape the country is currently in. I'm particularly interested in the decline in new HIV cases documented. What is this success largely credited to? Well, you know, new HIV infections have halved since 1999. So in 1999, we had almost 2,000 new HIV infections a day and it's currently sitting at less than 1,000 a day. So it's obviously progress, you know, in the fight against HIV and AIDS. And it can be attributed to a number of things. But I think the main thing is awareness programs. We've seen quite a lot of those either on television or through roadshows or in the press. It's also condom distribution and, of course, male circumcision. These are public health issues, and the National Department of Health has gone a long way in ensuring that people are aware that, obviously, practicing safe sex decreases the chances of acquiring the disease, but also male circumcision has shown to decrease the rate at which males can catch the disease quite a bit. Just in terms of the condom distribution, you know, in the 2011-12 financial year, the Department of Health distributed almost 400 million condoms. This was short of their target. but it's quite a large number. And not only are these condoms being distributed, but we also know from research that they're being used. So there was a national HIV communication survey that was published by the Department of Health as well, showing that, you know, condom use at first sex has gone up from 18% in 1996 to 66% in 2012. And, of course, this is an important indicator because research shows that couples who use condoms at first sex are more likely to use them throughout their lives. So the trend carries on. But are you satisfied with the progress made so far, or do you feel that much more still needs to be done? You know, progress is a good thing, but it's never enough, you know, The target for the National Department of Health is zero new infections. But, you know, we have one of the highest 
HIV rates in the world, and along with Swaziland. And of course, this brings about other problems, opportunistic diseases such as TB. And that we've also found that South Africa has one of the worst incidents of TB prevalence in the world. So progress is always welcomed, but we need to get to a point where we're sitting on zero new HIV infections a day. You spoke about the progress made, you know, condom distribution, for example. Does the report make mention of aspects that have proved challenging to address, especially in provinces like KwaZulu-Natal, where we're seeing a high rate of new infections? Yeah, I mean, it would be so difficult to pin it down to a singular thing. It's been a disease that has been around for many decades now, and it's also a disease that evolves. So like you mentioned, for example, KZN accounts for a third of all new HIV infections daily. So if we have a 1,000 new HIV infections daily, KZN has about 298. And this is in comparison, for example, with the Western Cape that only has 26 new infections. So of course, this is a challenge to the provincial departments of health in terms of how they lay about their budgets to be targeting. So the KZN Provincial Health Department would need to target HIV in particular because they have consistently shown the highest prevalence rates and new infection rates of HIV in the country. But I think, like I mentioned, it's so difficult to pin it down to a singular thing. You know, there's stigma, there's people who aren't aware, even though there's so many awareness programs, who aren't aware of what they can do to protect themselves from the disease. There are people that don't use condoms. For example, the data I referred to earlier shows that condom use at first sex has only gone up from 18% to 66%. That leaves, you know, almost 40% of people not using condoms when they should be. So it's it's a disease we can only tackle as much as we can and we can never reach you know all corners of society and educate absolutely everyone we can't change people's behavior patterns overnight and we can't make people's choices for them talking about tackling the disease how best according to the yearbook can south africa build on the success documented and accelerate action our survey is statistical mostly so we try you know give people the facts without analyzing them for them we did have earlier in 2013 a monthly publication known as fast facts where we look at all the data, plus we try to make some sort of analysis on how we can go forward. And one of the things that we did speak about in this monthly publication was how perhaps the focus should shift from ARV treatment, so treating the disease after it has occurred, and maybe move more towards a preventative mechanism of ensuring that we tackle the disease effectively. So, you know, we have the biggest ARV campaign in the world, and it's partly to do with our high HIV prevalence rate, but perhaps we should be doing more in the lines of condom distribution, male circumcision awareness programs. Lots has been done, but perhaps not enough. And so we need to move from treating the disease to preventing it altogether. That's Lerato Muloi, Head of Research at the South African Institute of Race Relations, or the SAIRR, speaking to Channel Africa's Elizabeth Mapari. You're listening to Africa Now moving on, members of Kenya's gay and lesbian community yesterday protested outside the Ugandan High Commission in Nairobi against a bill that seeks punitive punishment for homosexuality. The demonstrators demanded that Uganda's President Yoweri Museveni outrightly rejects assenting to the bill. Museveni has refused to sign the bill into law, indicating that there was no quorum at the time of passing the bill. But the Ugandan president labeled homosexuals sick and in need of help. Sarah Kimani reports from the Kenyan capital. 
Standing shoulder to shoulder with their Ugandan counterparts, the gay and lesbian community in Kenya, demanding a hearing and equal treatment for people they say are now in danger. Donning masks for some, waving placards for others, and singing protest songs, the activists sought to have their voices heard and their side of the story too. Mudoni is a lesbian. She says her family has accepted her. She wonders why Ugandan lawmakers will not. What if they are their, his children? Or someone's kid and comes to you and tells you, hey, dad, I'm gay. Are you supposed to say kill all gay? Or are you supposed to support those kids? What are you supposed to do with those kids? That's the question I wanted to tell Museveni. How is it for you being a gay person living in Kenya? Uh, it's, it has been hard. Uh, stigma, discrimination is very high. But we are getting by. Because I believe whatever I believe in, as long as my mom and my family supports me and they tell me, as long as you're not hurting anybody, we are with you all throughout the way. The Ugandan parliament in December last year passed the anti-gay bill replacing the death penalty with life imprisonment for aggravated homosexuality. The bill now awaits President Museveni's signature for passage. He has refused to sign it into law, but there is a risk. Eric Gitari is a gay rights activist in Nairobi. If he does not uh, respond to parliament within 30 days, parliament can pass the bill nonetheless with a two-thirds majority and make it law. Homosexuality is a crime in many African countries in Kenya. Gay and lesbian communities in Kenya is worried that should President Museveni assent to the bill, then it will have a ripple effect here in the country. Probably the reason why some of those who joined in the Nairobi demonstration opted to hide their faces. On Friday, the community held a similar protest outside the Nigerian High Commission. In solidarity with their Nigerian counterparts, President Goodluck Jonathan of Nigeria approved a law which criminalizes homosexuality in the West African nation. I'm Sarah Kimani in Nairobi. Now moving on, one of the Millennium Development Goals, the MDGs, that world leaders said to be achieved by 2015 is to eradicate extreme poverty and hunger. But there's still more than 800 million hungry people around the world. This is according to the United Nations estimates. Now as 2015 approaches, the focus is shifting to Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, which will come after the MDGs. To find out more about how far the world has gone in meeting these goals, UN Radio's Derek Mbata sat down with Jomo Kwame Sundaram, Assistant Director General of the Food and Agriculture Organization, or FAO. There has been progress, but it has been uneven and perhaps uh, less than satisfactory. It was announced uh, that the target for halving poverty was achieved by 2010. But there are doubts as to what the significance of achieving the poverty targets were. Why? The main reason is that poverty was originally defined in terms of what it takes to avoid being hungry. How would you define being hungry? How does the FAO define being hungry? The FAO has a very minimal definition. It has established the amount of dietary energy which is needed for a sedentary lifestyle. 
something which people like me can afford to have, basically sitting in the office, walking home and not really doing very much physical activity. But most working people, especially the poor, are expected to work a lot. So in a sense, the hunger definition which the FAO uses does not fully capture the higher dietary energy requirements which most people have. And also, it is important to remember that what we measure are people who are hungry all the year round. For example, if you are hungry half the year, or maybe for 10 months, but for two months right after the harvest you have enough food, you are not deemed hungry. So that's why I insist that the FAO definition of hunger is very minimalist. And the way you should describe the FAO numbers, for example, for the year 2011 to 2013, it is said that 842 million people are hungry. The correct way of stating that is to say that at least 842 million people were hungry. So there hasn't been any improvement as far as reducing this number of hungry people is concerned? Oh, there has been significant progress in reducing the share, but it has not been halved. The share has gone down by about uh, more than 40%, but it hasn't reached 50%. But the number of hungry people however, has not significantly gone down because population has increased. And so the number is over 800 million. And uh, the number in uh, 1990, which is the beginning of this period, was in that region as well. There was a World Food Summit in 1996, mm-hmm. and the target they set was to halve the number of hungry people, not the proportion of hungry people. Well- that's Jomo Kwame Sundaram, Assistant Director General of the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, talking to Derek Mbata. Now let's get our business news. Tabiso Loko standing by. Workers at Anglo Gold Ashanti's Sed Yola and Yatela Gold Mines in Mali have started a five-day strike demanding better redundancy payouts. The South African-listed uh, miner held off expansion of the Sed Yola mine and suspended excavation at Yatela last year, citing higher operational costs and lower gold prices. Secretary General for the Civil Engineering Mines and Energy Labour Confederation, Asanacom, um, Alfosieni Taure, says by midday, 70% and 95% of workers are down tools. Namibian power utility Nempower has reached a deal with Zambia's Copper Belt Energy Corporation to develop a much-delayed $1.2 billion gas-to-power plant in the country. CEC will take a 30% stake in the Kudu project near Orange Munt in southwestern Namibia. It will pump gas from the Kudu field to a combined cycle gas power plant. Nigeria has transferred $550 million from the proceeds of a Eurobond floated last year to its sovereign wealth fund, boosting the value of the fund to $1.55. The finance ministry says $200 million will be used to finance investments in gas-fired power, while the remaining $315 million will be put in a facility to guarantee payments to electricity producers as part of ongoing privatization efforts. 
South Africa's main opposition party, the Democratic Alliance, says the global economic crisis of last year's five years cannot be blamed for the slowdown of South Africa's economy. The party's parliamentary leader, Lindy Wemazibugo, blames a lack of leadership and policy direction for the economic position the country finds itself. She's told a news conference in the mother city, Cape Town, that other emerging economies such as Chile, Turkey and Malaysia have all outperformed South Africa over this period. They have similar resources. They are in a similar position in terms of being developing nations. Um, And we are simply not matching them in terms of growth. We're also not matching our peers on the African continent. Um, So no, I don't believe that the global economic downturn is a legitimate excuse for the economic situation we find ourselves in. The U.S. dollar trades at 11.9, South African rands at 8.90, Botswana Pula sent at 5.56, Zambian Kwachas. It's also trading at 0.60 to the British pound and at 0.73 to the euro. Gold trades at $1,282, platinum $1,389 an ounce. Brand crude oil, 9.69 cents a barrel. Economics update. This is Africa Midday here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We are broadcasting all the way from Johannesburg, South Africa, right here in our Auckland Park studios. I've got a little window here and outside just sunny uh, Johannesburg today. So it's a very good day here in South Africa. Hope that you are having a good day wherever you are in the continent of Africa or even abroad. And uh, remember, if you want to interact with us, there are various ways that you can do that. Do email us at info at channelafrica.org or SMS to plus two seven. 82332-5905 But Tamit Guza just walked in It's time for him to give us our sports update Thanks for joining us in your sports update. Let's start with cricket. South African cricket team, the Proteas, are ready for the, to face Australia for the first of the three test series that starts from Wednesday. The Proteas may have a poor home test record against Australia, but if history is anything to go by, the Proteas should start the three test series well. South Africa's last home test series victory over Australia was way back in the 1970s when Ali Bacha was in charge and they won that match for nil. Protest spokesperson Michael Owen-Smith says that Centurion has always been a fortress for South Africa. I think the team has been very well prepared for this. You know, they've been accused in the past of being underdone going into games and starting series on the back foot of it. So hopefully they're really going to hit their straps in the first ball on Wednesday. Owen Smith says that Centurion has always been a fortress for South Africa and now they hope that the players will come to the party and win the first test. I think I think the preparation is probably the best it's been for, for quite a long time for, for the test squad. The batting conditions were extremely difficult. It was very overcast. But I think you know, they got a lot out of it. 
And now in football, the Zimbabwe Football Association, the ZIFA, says that it hopes that the Warriors' impressive display at the African Asian Championship chain will help land a long-term deal with Git Manufacturer Embro. ZIFA's Chief Executive Officer Jonathan Mashingaita says that the Embro deal was just for the chain finals. There is optimism at the ZIFA house that a long-term deal will be reached following the Warriors' impressive dis- display in South Africa. Came in uh, to test the waters and uh, said beyond the 2014 chan tournament, we'll then sit down and then explore possibilities of having a uh, long term relationship. So when they came in, they came in because they believed that uh, we had a team that could um, help in terms of uh, profiling their uh, brand. And uh, we believe that beyond the tournament, we'll be uh, coming up with a template. Which template will be foolproof, uh, very transparent? in terms of selecting uh, technical gift sponsors. ZIFA has appealed to the corporate world to come on board and support the Warriors' cause as the team bids to compete at the highest level of international football for the 2015 AFCON and 2018 World Cup. Mashingaitse explains. Beyond the Chan tournament, we're now looking, um, looking forward to seeing the same team being the foundation for uh, the team that will do duty for Zimbabwe uh, during the 2015 African Cup of Nations qualifiers and also the team that also do um, duty for Zimbabwe uh, for the Kosafa tournament and other engagements that are going to be here between now and 2016. And now in rugby, Kenya's sevens rugby team will need to prove their quality in yet another international tournament after the South African Rugby Union Saro confirmed that Kenya will form part of the Vodacom Cup. The tournament takes place from the 8th of March to the 17th of May. Channel Africa's Francis Muteki reports. South African Rugby Union Saru confirmed that Kenya will form part of the Vodacom Cup in the place of Argentina's Pampas 15th Vodacom Cup champions in 2011. The Vodacom Cup kicks off on weekend of 7th and 8th of March with the finals scheduled for the weekend of 16th and 17th of May. Kenya's first game is against the EP Kings. Kenya will play in the south section of the competition and will be based in Cape Town. And finally, in Olympics, the Winter Olympics at Sushi appear to be falling apart flat somehow, with low spectators turn out and senior officials complaining that the games have no bars. Craig Herbert, an OHN member who has the IOC Marketing Commission, praised the overall organization but said that the games weren't as lively as hoped. They have to see to it that they fill the stadiums. I understand that they say that all tickets have been sold, and people who want to buy tickets, they, they cannot buy uh, tickets. So, so they should do something about uh, this to get school children or students or uh, even military people without uniforms out watching. And that's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa and back to Benjamin Moshatama. This is Africa Midday.
Now let's recap our top stories at this hour. South Africa marks 24 years since Nelson Mandela's release from prison. South Sudan peace talks have been postponed and election preparation gains momentum in Malawi. In business news, miners strike at Anglo Gold Ashanti sites in Mali. And finally in the sports, South African cricket team ready for the first test against Australia. It's been a great show. Thank you for joining us today. We did give you a whole lot of information of what's happening in the continent of Africa. Do join us again tomorrow, same place, same time, right here on Channel Africa. But uh, we also want to thank everyone, including our producer, uh, Pumodora Magadza, uh, for joining us and making sure that this show works and as Channel Africa, we also want you to let us know what you think of our content. Email to info at channelafrica.org. And that SMS number again, plus 27823325905. Don't forget the Twitter handle. It's growing. It's reaching its 600 mark. It's at Channel Africa 1. Do join us there. And our fan page on Facebook is titled Channel Africa. Now we are going to celebrate a little bit of that 24 years since Nelson Mandela's release with this one from Johnny Clegg. And this one is titled Asimbonanga. Asimbonanga.